0: Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello Rebels, and welcome to episode 132 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Nora Phoenix, and we're discussing niche genres and how to succeed. But first, to well, it's not last week's question anymore, is it? It's 2 weeks ago. <laughs> but it is. I fuck it. I'm going to I'm going to roll with calling it last week's question because that's what I always say. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we are looking at two weeks ago. So the question was, recommend me a craft book. So Erin J. Steen said, Writing for Emotional Impact by Carl Iglesias. Um, There are lessons on YouTube too. So I actually have that book. I haven't read it. So I'm going to bump it up my TBR. Erin McKnight said, This was such a great episode. It gave me uh, so much food for thought on my whip. The best craft book I've ever read is, uh, or the best craft book I have is The Emotional thesaurus. It's a lifesaver. I agree. I love the emotion thesaurus. Meg Jolly said, um, Wired for Story, this was a helpful grounding in how brain science can be used to hook readers that will absolutely help me improve my craft game in several key aspects going forward. I actually have um, both the audiobook and the physical book of Wired for Story and I haven't read either. Um, So I really need to up that as well. All right, so this week's question is, what are your favourite in-person events? The book recommendation of the week this week is The Shadows Between Us by Trisha Levenseller. So um, it has been a while since I sank a whole book in one evening. Um, now, I-, I almost sank this whole book. I think I'd read mm, maybe 50 pages. Um, and I got in the bath and I started reading and fuck me, I could not put the book down. Now, um, it was... It was delicious. Um, it's it's not a literary book, um, but it was engrossing. It was tantalizing um, the tension. It was an enemies to lovers fantasy uh, romance. And the the main character is morally grey, and oh my god, I just loved every second of it. I couldn't put it down. It was like a really indulgent guilty pleasure for me, um, and yeah. So I'm highly recommending that if you like enemies to lovers story stories, then you should have a read of that. Now the only thing that I will say is that it looks like it's on pre order again. So I don't know if they're doing like a big rebrand or something, um, but yeah, you may, like I found it on the book depository, uh, but I had my copy from before. So I don't know quite what is going on with that, but definitely put it on your TBRs. So in personal news and update, um, oh my God, it has been a week. Um, So I don't, really remember like time is a bit of a lie but uh, obviously you know that atlas had covid for a second time and um he went back to school and then he got sent home from school and then we've had car troubles and car rescue trucks coming to us and then atlas got bitten by something which caused a load of problems he's fine we're all fine the car will be fine Uh, but it's been a week of a lot of interruptions and disruptions to the normal working schedule so i've basically got fuck all done this week, which obviously makes my Geneva wildly unhappy. But you know, these things happen. That said, we did have the launch of the Rebel Diaries anthology. And I am so fucking proud of each and every single one of the authors in the anthology. And actually, of all of the authors that submitted, it takes an awful lot to submit your work um, to a, uh, uh, a judging panel. And we had stacks and stacks and stacks of amazing stories. And it was a real honour. I was really humbled at the number of entries uh, that we had. So thank you to everybody who Submitted, and um, hopefully you enjoyed the little sneak peek uh, that I popped up as an extra episode last week, where everybody uh, sort of narrated a minute of their story. And yeah, if you haven't got yourselves a copy, please do. Please go and support all of the authors uh, who who took the time to submit, and and the ones who were lucky enough to get into the anthology. Yeah, and then what else? Okay, so I've also had a book bub. Uh, crazy weird timing, but the book bub was on the launch day of the rebel authors di- uh, rebel author diaries. Now, I am going to do a full report on this because it was like a whole big project. Um, I went from Uh, basically redoing all the back matter, all the front matter. I've redone the blurbs, I've done categories, I've literally redone everything. And I am now tracking the downloads, the free downloads, the conversions and the sell through uh, to books two, three, and four. Um, And I have got uh, multiple newsletters booked for the next few weeks. So um, I should think by probably June, I will do a really big write up of this uh to explain everything that i did how i did it uh the lessons that i've learned and the results and the money spent so um yeah i'm really excited to share this information with you because i think quite often we don't hear about results and numbers and things and i really don't mind sharing any of this information so yeah that's what i'm going to do and um so i'm excited about that what else in terms of work I am trying to get the slide decks done for this Enemies to Lovers course. And I've also been working on the next nonfiction book. So The Anatomy of Writing, How to Read Like a Writer and Teach Yourself Craft. So this book, I don't know... I don't actually know if I've talked about it, but essentially this book is um, showing you how to really deconstruct your genre, how to understand what a writer is doing well, how to learn from that, how to implement it without copying, how to, yeah, basically how to be more um, intentional with your reading and get more out of your reading so that you develop and teach yourself craft rather than having to rely on other people to teach you craft. So, um that's what that book is, and I I have had another idea for another book, so for a nonfiction book um, that's different, and I'm very 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 excited about that one, and I'm really trying hard not to have shiny magpie syndrome, uh, but I do kind of have a bit of that. So I think over the next couple of days, I'm probably going to allow myself to sit down and just outline and chuck some well, not outline nonfiction, but chuck some notes down, chuck some ideas down, look up some resources and bits and bobs, um, because. I am very excited about it. And I am probably going to go back to back and write the second one uh, straight away because I'm that excited. Um, So yeah, next week I'm going to London Book Fair. I will be there Tuesday, Wednesday. I will be in London on Thursday, but I don't know that I'm going to go back to the fair on the Thursday. I usually just do the Tuesday, Wednesday. So uh, by the time this airs, it will be Wednesday. So if you're at the London Book Fair and you happen to be listening, then do try and find me and come and say hello. Um... So yeah, next week is going to be full on. I'm very excited about next week. And then um, yeah, and then I should be more back to normal. The following week is still uh, Easter holidays in the UK. So uh, the kiddo will be off, but I think my mum's going to have the kiddo. So I'm hoping I should be able to catch up because fuck me, the disruption to my working schedule. I, I, I have had barely any working time this year. So I am really quite behind on where I should <laughs> um but yes so anyway I am excited. The rebel of the week this week is Scott Williamson. So Scott is a patron and he is a wine merchant <laughs> and he gave, sent me this delightful gift that was also equally antagonistic. So basically uh for those of you that know my, one of my favorite authors is V E Schwab. I think she is amazing. I love her writing. I love her stories. I love everything about her. Um, But you also know I'm wildly competitive. So uh, I don't know how it even came about. But basically, It came about that I sort of watch how many books Victoria Schwab reads every year. And it became a bit of an in-joke with the patrons that I was competing, even though I'm not really competing, but like it became a joke. And so I just went with it. And anyway, so Scott, (laughs) the little bugger, um, went to one of Victoria's talks and he got a, a book signed by her. And then he handed her a second book. And what he said was, this is for my friend Sasha, who is in a secret competition with you to read more books. To which V.E. Schwab responded, well, as long as I'm winning. So I am sure (laughs) that all of you guys can understand (laughs) how much that antagonised me. what with having competition as my number one strength. So, um Scott was delightfully pleased with himself as he ought to be because that was well played Scott, well fucking played son. Um yeah, so he he wildly antagonized me and I am royally wound up. Uh so this week's rebel is a rebel against me. How How dare you, sir? How dare you? However, I did think it was a delightful story and I had to share it with you because, oh my God, did it tickle me pink. Now, I don't want you guys to go getting any ideas about rebelling against me every fucking week. But if you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, um, then please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. You can email your Rebel story to Becca on rebel rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. One new patron this week, welcome and a big thank you to Isabel Canas, Canas? I hope I've said your name right. I apologise if I've butchered it. Uh, Please do correct me. Uh, And a big gigantic thank you to all of my existing patrons. I love you guys. You guys are amazing. I love the community. Uh, Now we are going to be doing a quarter two challenge uh, as part of the rebel community. We have a shared, uh, uh, um, what is it called, <laughs> a spreadsheet. Um, and we are going to have, uh, we'll try to have one person host a week each week. So 12 hosts or, or six hosts doing two weeks or whatever. And um, during that week, you can do whatever you like. So for the, the weeks that I will host, I will do randomly timed um, sprints and live sort of Zoom sprint sessions. I know um, other people, I, I also might say, send some sort of voice memo encouragement other people are thinking about doing other different types of um, motivation and we will all check in weekly so if you would like to join that uh, quarter two challenge then you can uh, and you can get all of the episodes early early access to them and bonus content like the quarter two challenge from as little as two dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black This week's episode is sponsored by ProWritingAid. But rather than me uh, tell you why I think ProWritingAid is awesome, I am going to let my really good friend, Caitlin Duncan, tell you all about it. Caitlin is an author, a YouTuber. She's a hybrid author. She's the author of Take Back Your Book, which is all about book rights and a fascinating read, regardless of whether you're traditionally published or self-published. So please do make sure you go and check out a copy, and I will put a link in the show notes. Okay, over to Caitlin. For me, ProWritingAid is a constant companion for every writing project. I dedicate two whole steps of my editing process for ProWritingAid to ensure that my books are at the level that my readers expect. I love how this style and grammar editor brings my writing to a whole other level, and I'm constantly improving my craft every time I use it. I also enjoy using the browser extension so I can ensure that even if I'm down to the deadline with an author newsletter or a very important email from my publishing network, that my communication is clear and effective every single time. And I also love how you get lifetime access to this program, which gives me the confidence that I don't have to worry about another subscription service. And the lifetime updates truly make this a worthwhile investment in my career and life. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am talking to Nora Phoenix. Nora is a USA Today bestselling author in MM, or male-male, romance, with over 50 books published, proud single mum to an amazing teenage son, book addict, lover of all things pink, and an eternal optimist. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining. Um, So I think I actually may have stumbled upon you, possibly uh, uh, because of Becca. Sign maybe I think I feel like you may have been in the office once or twice. I don't know. I can't remember. But the time that I definitely saw you was twenty bucks to fifty k. I I wasn't in attendance, but I was kind of one of those virtual um, attendees. And oh my goodness me, I absolutely fucking loved your presentation. I like. I think I've watched it four times now. So.
1: Too. Yeah, no. I literally like. You probably like, know it better than me. Then <laughs> i just like
0: trying to like draw out every single atom of like brilliance from you, uh, from from that session. So yeah, um, it really resonated. I think because we both share competition and Um and everybody who listens to the podcast, everybody can drink already. Like there's a whole on running joke about how many times I mentioned fucking strength. So. Anyway, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you and kind of your like your journey? How did you get to where you are today?
1: Yeah, my journey is um, is a long one. <laughs> that's uh, That's really, I'm one of those people who started writing stories as a kid. So really, I've always loved reading. I think my mom took me to the library when I was a toddler and I became a member and I just kept on reading and reading and then even as a child, the stories were in my head. Like I, I, I I remember making a magazine for my family when I was eight years old with stories I had written. Totally cute. I know. Um, (laughs) And then as a teenager, I got a little more serious. I had a typewriter. This is all pre-computer, you know, times obviously. And by hand, I still have the stories. I mean, they're technically really bad, but they're incredibly cute and adorable and super romantic as a, you know, 14 year old teenager can imagine things. Um, And it's always been my dream. But then, you know, reality kicks in. Um, you have a high school counselor who tells you that being an author is not a viable career choice. Mm-hmm. And so um I became, I decided to study history. I'm a licensed uh, history and social studies teacher in the Netherlands. I, that's not, I'm from the Netherlands originally. That was not going to happen. I love the history, the teaching part. Not day in, day out. I love teaching. I love teenagers. The combination, no, no. Um, So I had all kinds of jobs, but in the back, that really that urge, that need to write was still there. And so I kept plugging away at it, kept writing, but always as a hobby. And then in 2016, my Um, ex-husband and I, then husband uh, split up, we divorced and I had a choice. It was basically now or never. Um, I was going to have to support myself. And so it was either get a full-time job or take the jump and make something out of this writing thing. And (laughs) with a courage, I didn't know I even had, I decided to take the jump. I was really fortunate that my ex-husband was incredibly supportive. He still is. Um, and so he, he financially supported me for the first two years. He said, I will make sure that you can dedicate yourself to this full time, which is an incredible place to start to have that financial security for two years. But within a year, I made enough to um, support myself. I went from zero to 100,000 in the first year. So that was I didn't see that coming. Neither did my ex-husband. We still joke about it because I had made a plan that said, well, maybe I can get $15,000 in the first year. And that was, I felt pretty ambitious. Um, So that was uh, 2017. And ever since I've been writing and doing really well, I'm very happy and lucky in that sense. So that's kind of been my journey.
0: What an amazing, amazing journey. Oh, I love it. I get goosebumps even listening to it. Like what major wins as well, right? Thank um, you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You should be massively proud. And yeah, I want to learn all of the things and talk to you about all of the things. Um So your session at 20 books was all about killing it in a niche. Yeah. Um. So, I, although we we have sort of listeners at all different ends of the spectrum um, in terms of writing and, and being indie authors, I wondered if we could start at the beginning. What is either the definition or your definition of a niche? Is it determined by like the number of titles in a in a genre? Is it by the number of likely sales? Is it defined
1: as anything that isn't the most popular genres? Like what is a niche? I don't even think there's a real definition of it. The way I see it, it just means that you have divided up a certain genre into a smaller subgenre that you are specifically targeting. Um, I would consider, for example, cowboy romance is a subgenre of contemporary romance, at least if we're talking about contemporary cowboy, you can also go back into Western times, but, um, I don't know if I would call that a niche based on the number of sales. I'm not that familiar with other genres, but I would definitely look at, is this a limited market or is this already completely flooded? When I started writing MM romance, male-male romance, it was definitely a niche. It was a lot smaller than it is now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm entering my fifth year of, of writing in this genre and a lot has changed. Um, we have a lot of new authors coming. Also, a lot of new readers. Uh, luckily, <laughs> the, the, the market is growing. I think at this point it still is a niche, but it won't be for much longer because we also see some very popular contemporary romance um, people writing MM, which I am a huge fan of. Serena Bowen is an example. Um, I, I love seeing that, absolutely love seeing that. So I think we're right at that point where maybe in a year or two, MM Romans won't know, won't be a niche anymore because it's just grown too big. So I do think it's a combination of sales and popularity, um, but I don't think anybody has very specific numbers on that.
0: Yeah, I think LGBT. Q plus fiction in general is becoming a lot more popular I know um like when I was a teenager <laughs> how many years ago that was um there was no <laughs> LGBT fiction yeah. and like as a consequence I like as a queer woman I came to writing writing straight books because that's all I'd ever consumed and it, it didn't even like occur to me I mean I have I'm Queer enough that I've married a woman and had a kid with her, right? So, like, and it didn't even occur to me that maybe I should be writing queer books.
1: Like, they, I don't know they how just, that happened. They just didn't exist. I mean, Where? I think they existed, but it was definitely a very small, um, small subgenre. But also pre-Amazon, a lot of those books weren't simply not accessible. Mm-hmm. So I think you know as much as we can all bitch and complain about Amazon, and trust me, I do at times. But one of the things they've definitely done is open up the the publishing market to a lot of of genres that otherwise wouldn't have had a chance. And I think um, queer fiction, in in the broadest sense, and queer romance, is definitely exa- an example of that. I don't think it would have had the popularity it, it has now uh, without Amazon opening the doors. Basically, if we had to rely on um, traditional publishers, it it, it wouldn't have happened or much later, much later. Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay.
0: So lots of people say, you know, find a niche that's hot, um, they, you know, read in that niche, do all of the things about learning about that niche. So I wondered if we could take a minute to talk about assessing a niche. Um, how do you know if it's financially viable? Uh, like, I suppose by definition, a niche means a smaller part of the market and therefore it's going to mean lower sales. Um, and I know that you mentioned in your presentation, um, I think you gave some specific numbers that were something like 21,000 sales and 40,000 odd. Um KU page reads as um, those were the numbers for one of the most popular books in your genre. And that was sort of the ceiling. So I just wondered, yeah, like as somebody who is very good at assessing a genre and you know, understanding metrics and things, how do you look at it? How do you, how do you do that assessment?
1: Well, as much as I was drawn to MM romance. Uh, before deciding that that was a genre I was going to write in, I did do that assessment. Now, we weren't at that high ceiling back then yet. this is this is really an example the numbers that you uh, quoted of how much we've grown. Um, what I did is is simply look at the top 50. In in that genre. Now, in our case, we have the, the benefit that our niche is also a category on Amazon, gay romance. So I would go to the gay romance category. And for a couple of months, I, I simply kept track of What is the ranking of the top 50 in the Amazon overall store? Because that will tell you roughly how much income they're generating. Now, it's always a guess because nobody knows how Amazon's algorithms work. And we never will know because obviously that's a trade secret. Completely understand. But if you see the top five at any given time in gay romance fluctuate between say a number 25 in the overall Kindle store and a number 250 then you know that money is being made those are those are good numbers but you also want to look at the whole top 50 where are where are the others ranking because if it's just one or two authors that are really popular that doesn't mean you'll be able to get those numbers but if you see a broad range and i think in in top 10 in 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 gay romance we see probably uh, I want to say probably the top 10 is usually under the ranking of a thousand in the whole store. That's money. That's money-making rank. Um, So that will tell you, but you also need to look over time. You can't pick just one week because we've had weeks where, I I remember when um, Royal Red, White, and Blue came out. Is that what it's called? Royal, yeah. Red, White, and Royal Blue. Red, White. I I was like, I'm Casey McQuiston. Yeah. Look, I absolutely love that book. It was fucking fantastic, but it would not get out of the top ten. Like we've had that damn book in the top ten. I want to say for a year, and then the publisher would discount the ebook, and it popped right back up. Same with Call Me by Your Name, which, by the way, we can debate whether or not that's a romance. But, you know, whatever. Those books like that, the heavy hitters within the, the chat pub, they throw the numbers off. So you really have to look at, and you know, over time, a two, three months will give you um, a good idea of, is this genre viable in terms of sales? That's the only way you can guess. There's some, um, there's some estimates from, I think it's Kindlepreneur who does that. Um, they estimate based on the sales how much people make. Uh, they're off. They're- yeah, they <laughs> are.
0: I, I've checked mine and they're like. I've checked mine
1: and I'm out. like, <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. like <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah.
0: Mm. So, okay, and so is I guess a thousand is kind of like the ceiling, or do you look at it like more cumulatively? Because I suppose. So when you started, were they still at a thousand or that's where they are now? I, I'm, I, I'm asking selfishly because I'm looking at like some genres and I'm like, oh, not really sure like whether or not mm. this is going to continue to grow. And like the 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 competition in me, like that risk person who is willing to take risk is like, I think this is going to grow. And so it's worth going in now. Like, but also I, I like money. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's. Yeah, it's a
1: it's a a really tough decision because there are definitely moments where you have to grab the opportunity. Mm -hmm. One of the things I absolutely got right is that I was one of the first um, M.M. Romance authors who went all in on German translations. Um, I had released a few. They did really well. And then I was like, okay, if I want to grab this market, because I I looked at the numbers and I was like, there is money to be made here. If I want to grab this market, I have to rapid release. And so I invested heavily in translators um, and release books. I can tell the difference between the releases I did back then and German releases I'm doing now, because they're not ranking nowhere near as high because the competition has increased so much. So there is absolutely... um, something like the perfect timing and, and grabbing an opportunity. But yeah, we also want money because there's bills to be paid and, you know, mortgages to be paid and all that crap. So it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. It is. Um, okay. So
0: I know that you write fast. I've, I've heard you mention yeah. that you write fast. Do you think that you need to write fast in order to make a niche work. Um, and what does writing fast look like? Do you have, yeah, like what are kind of some of your processes?
1: I, I think it really depends on the niche you're in. When I started out in gay romance, releasing fast definitely had advantages. My first book released in October of 2017. And for the first two years after that, I released every single month. That's a benefit not only for readers, because they recognize your name, you, you play yourself, you write yourself into the picture, but it also helps, um, especially back then with, with Amazon's algorithm, because you release every 30 days, Amazon, you know, keeps promoting your stories and you get a lot of organic traffic. Um, so, yes, in, in my genre, it helps. That being said, there's authors in my genre who are at my income level who don't release as often as I do, um, who are doing it once every two months or once every three months. It it really depends. It also depends on the on the niche itself. I think there are um, several subgenres where readers don't expect the fast releases. It, It works for me and it happens that I'm a fast writer. I don't think it's the only way. It's not like, oh, you have to write fast to be successful. I don't think that's true.
0: And what are some of the things that you have done or tweaked in your process in order to make you to help you write fast?
1: I am. um, I've definitely embraced uh, dictation, which was was that was a learning curve. I really struggled in the beginning because my brain functions differently when I write than when I talk. So I had to because I'm not a plotter. Um, I do write some romantic suspense within MM. If I write the suspense part, I will plot out the suspense part because that's that's where the story needs to make sense. Other than that, I'm very character-driven in the sense that I come up with the characters broadly. I define the main conflict and the setting. And then I start writing and I simply ask, okay, what would this character logically do next? And so that's how I write my stories. I just happen to be able to do that pretty quickly. Now I've had books, my fastest book I wrote in 10 days, that was just, that story just poured out of me. I've also had books that take longer. There are books that are just more difficult to write or have a a plot that needs more um, research or just, you know, more complicated. I think, yeah, I'm coming back to the strength. I mean, I hate to jump to that, but that's, I think it's a, it's a big part of it is that, um i'm a i'm a number uh, one, number one achiever and a number two learner that learner is like i gather all the information how can i be more efficient how can i do this how can i do that and then i'm an achiever so uh, competition is also in my top 5 so i have all those <laughs> all those strengths lined up to basically say okay i'm going to do this and i'm going to do this really well that's just how I'm wired. I i compete with myself, I compete with others, not in an unhealthy way, but that's just You're inspires. talking to number so, yeah. one competition. There is no unhealthy competition
0: here. Like <laughs> we are all good with the competition.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, there's this, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, and we're not competitors. Look, when it come down, when it comes down to it, we are competitors. I mean, not if you're not in the same genre, but as much as I support and and love my MM romance community, in a way we are competitors. So I do help others to a certain degree. The bottom line is I need to pay my bills, not everybody else's. Yeah, no,
0: I completely agree. You know, ultimately bringing more readers into any genre helps the genre, but it also helps you. And also I don't really believe in true altruism anyway. So, you know, (laughs) 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 Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. So everyone tells you to research your genre, but I think that for newer writers, That is a big statement, and there often doesn't come a lot of explanation for what that really means. Um, so when you are looking, let's start with the market. What are you looking for in terms of everything outside of the book, in terms of understanding and researching your market and your books? Yeah, your genre. As
1: cliche as it sounds, it's to me, it starts with reading. You cannot successfully write in a genre with very few exceptions probably that you don't read extensively in um mm romance is is a, a prime example of a genre that has unwritten rules we are dealing with quite some sensitivities because we're writing queer stories and if you are not well versed in the genre you'll make mistakes in those sensitivities i made them definitely in the beginning i've i've really grown in understanding you know the the um basically the context in in which I'm writing. But I think reading a lot, is just super important to understand, okay, what what is normal? What is common? What do readers want to see? Another piece of research that I do a lot is I have a huge um, reader group, 5,000 people. I do a lot of polls and people say, oh, polls, they don't mean anything. Yeah, but it's like taking temperature, you know? And sometimes I do a this or that. Would you prefer friends to lovers or enemies to lovers? Does it tell you anything? yeah. Maybe not, not hard evidence, not hard numbers, but it still gives me a gut feeling of where the market is going. I also every single day check out the top twenty in gay romance. Every single day, I don't write things down. I just look at it and I make a mental note of hey. I'm seeing another book with this trope pop up. Hey, the trend in covers is changing. I'm seeing more black and white covers, or I'm seeing two men on the cover again instead of one, or I'm seeing abstract covers, or you know, there's a lot of fantasy in the top 20. Those are the kind of things nobody can tell you because nobody is able to do that research except you. And that just means constantly checking in with that genre, Um, cover research is incredibly important. You want your book, especially when you're starting out, you want your book to look the same, but different, which Mm -hmm. is always, I hate it when people say that, but that's the only way to describe it. Um, you know, it has to fit in. If somebody sees that cover, they have to be able to identify, oh, this is MM romance or contemporary because our covers are not that different anymore from contemporary. Um, I also look for which authors, are consistently doing really well. And what is it that that makes them so popular? Um, one of the most successful authors, uh, let me mention two successful authors in my genre is Lucy Lennox and K.M. Newhall, Kylie Newell. Um Both of them write romantic comedy, rom-com. That is, I think, within MM, the biggest genre, the biggest market that you can possibly have is rom Same is for lesbic as well. yeah. That's. And so if if I were a new writer, I would look at that and go like, huh, that's interesting. I can't write romcom to save my life. I'm just not that kind of person. That's also because um, I think it's because I'm from Europe and my my sense of humor tends to gravitate more toward the British kind and the and the subtle kind. That's not what Americans consider humor. I don't mean to offend anybody, but. My my humor is different; it doesn't translate well, so I don't even try. Um, but the more elements you introduce, the smaller your market. If rom com is the biggest genre, is the biggest, basically the biggest market within MM romance. If you write rom com and all of a sudden you decide, oh, I'm going to make it an MMM, like a threesome, you just lost a good chunk of your market, and now you decide it's a rom com, but it also has kink. One of the guys is a daddy, right? So now you have MMM daddy. You just just cut your market in half again. And that's the kind of choice that new writers need to be so aware of. Because once you box yourself into a certain type of books, it's really hard to get out of that. Once you've written five daddy books, that's what readers expect from you is daddy. Mm And then if you don't write a daddy, everybody's like, um, no, no, I don't want this. I want more daddies. And you'll be like, oh, crap. Now I have to write daddies for the rest of my life. Ask me how I know. Yeah, luckily <laughs> I'm not that boxed in, but I do. I, I do have readers who really want me to write a very specific series or type of story. And I, you know, it, it's it's hard. It is
0: yeah you have to find the things that bring you joy as well and you know none of us want to write the same story over and over and over again oh god no um so how how much do you read in the genre i have had a couple of patrons sort of say questions like i can't find books that i like in the genre that i'm writing in i i can't the the amazon markets are blurry because there are books that look like they should be in the, this niche but aren't necessarily in the in this niche. So like I mean how how much should we be reading in in these genres? I suppose is the first question. how do we how do we understand what is right in that genre, in terms of the books, in those markets? and how do we uh, work out the ones that are just playing the game in terms of categories and keywords and and things like that?
1: I think success is a, is a big um, determinator. I think um, people who cheat on categories, ultimately, they're never going to make it. I mean, <clears throat> if somebody brags because they you know have an orange banner in, I don't know, lesbian poetry, but the book is a lesbian romance, at the end of the day, you're not going to find the readers because nobody is going to look into lesbian poetry when they want a lesbian romance. So I don't think those strategies work. I think actually you're just fucking up your own um, Amazon algorithm because once you pick the wrong categories, Amazon doesn't know who to offer your books to. You want those categories to be correct, um, you know, both from a moral point of view, but also from a sales point of view. Now, the problem we have in gay romance is that it's, it's one category. Everything that is MM romance is in that category, whether it is contemporary, historical, fantasy, Um, uh, MPREG, which is, you know, male pregnancy, a fun subgenre that we have, whether it's kink, daddy, everything is in MM. That is a problem because it's really hard for readers to pick out which subgenres within MM they would like and which they won't. To see in terms of content, look, I read pretty much everything. I don't have, I have some triggers everybody does Um, But I don't have a lot of of tropes where I say on principle, oh, I'm not going to read that. I don't read a lot of second chance romance. That's a really weird trope. I just don't like it. I've read very few second chance romances that I really like. So that's just a personal thing. That's nothing about quality. But other than that, I try to read everything within MM, a broad variety, because I want to see what people are doing. I want to see what's working. And if I don't like a book or if a book has been hyped and it's not doing as well as everybody expected, I really try to do um, analysis, like what went wrong? Like what happened? Is it the cover? Is it, oh, the first chapter is boring? Um, Is it, you know, the dialogue is still that like, I, I also want the answers and I'm pretty deliberate in that step. And I don't think a lot of people do that.
0: Yeah and that's definitely your learner because I do that as well. Um so and I suppose digging deeper on that then. Um what is it when you are reading those books that you look for in order to ter- to determine what is genre like you mentioned earlier how um l uh, l uh, gay romance can have um um there were some mistakes, like things to avoid Mm. and how also it can be political as well. So like, how do you know what elements are genre and what elements are like trope? And what are the hard lines? Is that just experience? Is it frequency of it turning up?
1: Like, how do you, I think genre is so hard. It is really hard. I think um, as much as I hate to say it, Goodreads is in that case a really good barometer. Just don't read your own reviews; read the <laughs> reviews from other people. It's a fucking um, cesspit
0: for your own books.
1: So, bad reviews, generally speaking, don't bother me. I'm one of those people who I'm like Teflon; like it slides right off. Sometimes they get personal. That's when I get pissed off. Um, <laughs> the funny is critical feedback I've ever gotten was um, I'm from the Netherlands. Dutch obviously is my, my um, native uh, language. And I had one Dutch character who, you know, said some Dutch words and I had a reader comment that I'd gotten it wrong. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, wow. and she wasn't even Dutch. And I just, I just laughed. I'm like, this is this is the funniest fucking shit ever. You're trying to correct my own language, like whatever. Go- and, and I'm not the only one because I have a good uh, a good friend of mine who's an author who is, um, you know, from Cuba originally. And so Spanish, you know, she's fluent in Spanish. She had readers correct her Spanish. Like somebody from Cuba wouldn't say it like that. Um, you want to bet? Oh my God, I love. So some of those things are just, but reviews in this sense are a really good source of information because especially reviewers who read a lot, they'll point out the mistakes to you. They'll be like, um, this book didn't have full consent, which within MM romance is huge. That's a really big thing. Consent, very casual, but the consent has to be there. If there's no consent, then you have to call a up.com. Like I don't care. I don't have a moral opinion on whether you want to write Dubcon or noncon. That's all fine. But you damn well better label it correctly.
0: Um, I what, of are those, what are
1: those two? What are those? Can you just for the listeners who may not? I'm read- oh, sorry. Yeah. Dubcon yeah, is right. dubious consent. So ah. that includes situations where there's no informed consent. For example, when somebody is drunk, when there's, um, fantasy elements where somebody isn't in full possession of their own free will, in slave situations. And then non-con is, is basically it's a euphemism for rape because that's what it comes down to. In the Mm -hmm. normal world, we would call non-con rape. We've just come up with a nicer word for it. Um, And again, no moral judgment, if that's what you want to write. I don't judge people for what they read or write. That's to each their own, but you have to label it correctly. And readers will call you out on that. Um, to, to our genre, triggers are very important. You have to give content warnings. You don't need to do it in the blurb and then just say, check the trigger warnings or the content warnings in the front of the book and make sure it's included in the look inside. So readers can use the look inside feature on Amazon to see, okay, this book has a content warning for domestic abuse. Okay, that's a trigger. I don't want to read it. Um, issues specifically for MMR um, condoms, safe sex, that's a huge one. That's just, you cannot just skip condoms. You have to have a reason. And the reason can be a two-line dialogue saying, a character saying, I'm on prep, how about you? Oh, I'm on prep too. There, problem solved. But you have to address it. Readers expect that and some readers get upset if you don't. That's one of those unwritten rules. But you will pick up on that in the conversations on Goodreads because that's the shit that readers will call out. They don't do it nicely, but Goodreads is a reader platform. They can say and do whatever the fuck they want. I don't get involved. I do use it as a research. Mm. Oh, I think this is
0: amazing. This is such, such good information. Thank you so much for answering in such detail. Um, okay. Uh, one of the things that I thought um, was interesting that you mentioned uh, in the presentation was around the differences between writing to market and writing to trend. So I wondered if you could just give a quick um, sort of explanation of
1: the differences. Yeah, I think this is... This is uh where a lot of people are really confused. They constantly use the terms um, interchangeably and they're not the same. Writing to market simply means that you have chosen a specific market audience and that you write your books in such a way that it appeals to that audience. Now that doesn't necessarily need to be a big audience. That can be a very specific niche, but you're writing in a way that captures that market. Let's say I am writing a book specifically in MM romance for readers who love daddy kink. That means the book has to have daddy kinks. That also, kink, that also means I have to hit the, the feels and the subtropes and the elements that readers who love daddy kink expect which is probably a spanking because that's really something that a lot of readers love. Um, the don't we all? Careful. Don't we all? Well, I mean, in theory, <laughs> yes. In reality, do yeah. <laughs> But it's, you know, readers express what they want. Oh, I like it when, you know, the daddy takes care of his boy or where the boy comes home from work and he's all excited, you know, all exhausted and the daddy, you know, gives him a bath. Those are the tropes the, the elements you need to hit to write to market. Mm. Writing to trend simply means that you are keeping track of what's popular on Amazon. You see something that is basically crosses with whatever you're writing and you jump on that trend. Now, I'm once again going to mention Daddy Kink because it's a, it's a little more mainstream now, but Daddy Kink at some point was a huge trend within MM. It became wildly popular. I happened to be one of the first authors who jumped on it. That was writing to Trent. It is to this date, still firm hand, my best selling book because the Trent was right there. I wrote that book in 10 days. I had a really good story in my head. Oh, my God, I, was, I got the idea while traveling in Australia, of all things. And I was the story was so strong, I started writing by hand. I sent, I took pictures, I sent the handwritten stuff to my PA and asked her to type it out. I because I didn't have a computer on me. My God, that was fun. Ten days I wrote the book. It's still my bestseller because I was able to pivot very fast and jump on that trend. But in order to catch a trend, you have to write fast and you have to really understand the trend. It's a risk you're taking because trends happen one day, they're gone the next. I mean. Twilight, the vampire thing that was that started out as a trend. All the books that came after Twilight, all the vampire books, Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Holy cow. That's billionaire.
0: Billionaire romances started as a hot trend.
1: There's a whole trend. And so if you happen to write something that fits that trend, please, by all means, jump on it. It can make you really good money. But it has to fit. If you usually write sweet cowboy romance and 50 shades becomes a hit, and all of a sudden you write a, you know BDSM romance, no, nobody's that's not gonna work. It's not on brand for you. Daddy King for me was on brand. I'd written it before in, in a smaller sense, it was very on brand, and I think that's why it worked.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's say you found a niche, uh, you found a genre and you you've written the book or you've written a couple of books and you're 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 ready to go into it. How on earth do you build a platform in advance of a launch?
1: I think this is um, for a lot of authors. The hardest part is in general marketing that's because marketing is selling and most of us hate selling because selling gives us, you know, a bad taste in our mouth.
0: Whereas I love um, selling because it means
1: money. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that, like, you know, I don't like selling so much If it helps me pay my mortgage. As long right. As well. <laughs> I think, um, to me, I think the the um, I mean, everybody knows you have to build a network on on, you know, on social media platform, go on Twitter, go on on Facebook, on TikTok, whatever, whatever fits your um, character and your um, strengths best. I'm not on TikTok because I'm not a video person, um, but I think, you know, and a lot of people do really well there. That's awesome what i think is a step that a lot of people forget is networking with other authors and that to me has been the single most important thing i've done in building my platform i had a reader group with over 500 people before i'd ever launched my first book i had i hadn't i mean i was writing it and i was you know promoting it but the book hadn't released yet My reader group started in August of 2017. My first book released in October. By the time my book released, my reader group had grown to 500 people. So how did I do that? I got a little lucky there and I did some things deliberately, but I networked with all the other authors in my genre. I really networked, And the way you do that, for me, this is different, I think, for every genre. My genre is really active in Facebook groups. Like every author has a reader group. And so I joined all those reader groups under my author name as Nora Phoenix, uh, which, you know, obviously is a pseudonym, a pen name, but I've joined all those reader groups and I became active in their reader group, not about me, but about them genuinely saying, oh my God, I, I read your new book. It is amazing. I love it. Um, and if you do that consistently, you are now on the radar of those authors, People may not remember you consciously, but they do subconsciously. And when your book releases and they see your name pop up, they'll be like, oh, my gosh, that's that woman who's so active in my group and always so enthusiastic and promoting my books and whatnot. I'm going to I'm going to wish her a happy release day. I'm going to promote her book. Then if I ask them, hey, can I do a takeover in your group? Can I post about my new release? They'll be like, sure. Sure. That's the step that so many people forget. They're just plugging away on Facebook and on Twitter, feeling like nobody is listening, but you have to tap into the audience. Other authors have already built, not stealing it, but the audience is there. You just got to connect with them. Um, Something else I did is go to um, a a reader conference before I had released my first book. Um, There's um, um, a a conference for MM romance called Gay Rom Lit, GRL, which is every year in October. And so in 2017, I went to GRL, which was in Denver at the time. And I had my, my first book, book come out a week after GRL. That timing turned out to be absolutely perfect. Like I could not have picked a better timing because I met all these readers as a fellow reader. But at the same time, as soon as you get to know people, they're like, oh, who are you? Well, I'm also, you know, my, my book is coming out next week. You can, you can do it very organically. You don't have to sell. You just tell them. Hey, I'm also an author, and you know they were oh like oh my gosh, what's your book called? I'm going to pre-order it. So my first book had over a hundred pre-orders for a newbie author out of nowhere, over a hundred. So that's how I did that. Now here's the caveat: I'm an extrovert. I'm an introverted extrovert, extroverted intro. However you want to see it. Like, look, I love people, but after like I don't know, 24 hours, I need some quiet time and everybody needs to shut the fuck up because I need to recharge. And then I can take people again. I'm like that. Um, I'm easy. I talk easy. I'm social. I can make connections. That really, really helps. I think it's a lot harder for people who are naturally introverted and have more social anxiety or, um, you know, anxiety about social situations that makes it a lot harder. So I don't mean to make it sound easy It was for me. It's not for others. I completely understand that.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm a, I think I, I think I call it an ambivert because I, uh, when I am in a conference, I'm it's all game face. There's a competition talking, but like it is, it's, it is, it is game face and it's all the talking. And then I'm like fucked for like a week afterwards, (laughs) but I can do it. I can do it. And I can, you know, be buzzy and, you know, whatever else. And, smile and, uh, you know, inside I'm puking in the corner and rocking, but it's fine. We can do it. And then afterwards I just quietly die for a week. Yeah. <laughs> anyway,
1: I recognize that. I like that. I like yeah. that more. Yeah. That's yeah. That kind of says yeah.
0: it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So do you have any advice on release strategies?
1: I think it really depends on how often you release Um, Because I release every month or not entirely anymore, usually every six weeks, give or take. It's a little harder to build that same level of excitement and go all out for every release because I have so many. I think if you release four books a year, you're much more able to build that momentum and you should build that momentum. That being said, I do really um, promote a book for as long as I can. I, I share a lot of teasers. Um, and I use a lot of visual teasers, which is something not every author do does. It's just you want to grab the people who are who are visual as well. So you want a picture of the character or what the character could look like, and then you know pick an emotional quote, something that appeals to the reader where they're like, "Oh wow, I really want to read that book." I use those a lot. I'm I'm lucky that I have a designer who is absolutely fantastic at making them because I suck at graphics. Um, so I do that a lot. Release parties I did in the beginning, but I'm I'm at a level where it really doesn't make that much difference. I more do a release party to invite other authors to my group and give them a platform than the other way around. It doesn't do much for me. I might do it for a new series. If I launch a new series, I usually go a little more all out, or if it's the last book in a series, then I make it a little bigger. Um, I don't usually run ads, which I know people are still like, "How can you?" Yeah, I don't. No, I have a few running, but minimal. Different markets, maybe some Amazon ads in 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 France or Germany, and and that's about it. I rarely run ads on Amazon US. It's just not worth the money. Wow, I uh, I
0: only run uh, a few ads just because I don't really
1: enjoy doing it. Well, um, but, there are,
0: but there are other ways to market as well, which I find much easier and, um, you know.
1: Well, and much more effective. And this is something that people also, I think, don't always um, consider. Look, I'm a numbers person, which is really funny because I'm really bad at math and I hate math. I'm still a numbers person because I want, I want the evidence. And so I think what people need to realize is that if you need to spend $60,000, to make $100,000, your net, it's not even your profit because you'll have other expenses as well, but the difference between those two is basically you're making $40,000. If I don't run ads and thus I only spend $2,000, but I make $70,000, you're saying, well, you make less than me. Yeah, but I also spend a hell of a lot less. Mm-hmm. Like you're down the line on, you're, you're talking about $40,000, I'm talking about sixty-eight. That's a huge difference. That's what I'm looking at. I'm sure I could sell more if I ran ads, but I've done it. And to me, it's not worth it. The time and money I need to put into that is not making me more money in you know, in terms where I'm like, oh, that's at the same level. It's not uh, worth it.
0: No, I spend about an hour and a half a month on ads and that's about it. And then I, And then I do a 10-minute check about halfway through the month. I just can't be I, That's enough for me.
1: <laughs> 15, 15 minutes on every Monday, 15 to 30 minutes. I check my ads. I decide whether or not I want to run a new Amazon ad. If the timer goes after 30 minutes, I'm done.
0: Yeah, yeah. If that
1: shit, we'll be back next week. <laughs> yeah. I Amen. can't, I just, you get sucked into it. And, all the, and I've done all the courses. I've done Mark Dawson's course and I've done all the courses. And they all say something else or they all say the same and everybody's trying it at the same time. And at some point I'm like, you know what, I, I think I make more money if I spend my time writing books rather than filling at ads. So there's that.
0: Yeah. I I think that is an amazing segue into my next question, which is bank over rank. Oh my God. What does it mean? But more importantly, the thing that I'm interested in is how does it affect or change business decisions for you? Yeah.
1: In a huge way. So (laughs) I'm about to climb on my soapbox here, people. (laughs) This is something I feel really, really strongly about. And We've seen several changes in Amazon's algorithms over the year. And every time people panic, we've had one a couple of weeks ago and new releases tanked and people were panicking. And now it's like, oh my God, they changed this, they changed that. What they change is the ranking. They don't necessarily change the bank that you're making, which is why I focus on the bank. At the end of the day, it's not my ranking that is in my bank account. It's how much money I get from Amazon. I've had books that consistently ranked much lower than other books and yet made more money simply because of the way the sales were um, spread out or, um, you know, the, the, I don't know, there's so much that goes into an Amazon rank. So I tell people, of course, the benefit of rank is that if you rank higher, Amazon might promote your book organically. And that's definitely a benefit. Is it worth it? Is it worth it, you know, throwing everything to get that super high rank? I I don't think it is. And that's, like you said, how does it affect or change business decisions? Well, one of the decisions that it has uh, made very easy for me is is the decision to not spend a lot on on ads. Ads would absolutely improve my ranking, but it wouldn't improve my bank because at at the bottom line, my bottom line would be much lower. I'm not willing to I'm not willing to spend that. It also means that my sales are more robust. When Facebook a couple of weeks ago um, changed. Some things in Facebook ads because of Apple's changes in privacy, which, you know, as an Apple consumer, I'm really happy about. As an advertiser, obviously, it sucks. A lot of people had huge problems with their Facebook ads and their sales plummeted. I, I, I didn't even see a blip because my sales aren't dependent uh, on, on ads. So most of my sales are organic. Readers who have read me, who be, who are subscribed—I mean, organic—but you know, my newsletter. I have I have a newsletter, twelve thousand people. I have a five thousand people uh, a reader group. That's that's my primary marketing, and and that's based on bank, not rank. Really, people follow the numbers. That's that's all I want to say. Follow the numbers because at the end of the day, the goal is not. To become number one in the Amazon store. I'm not willing to spend $900,000 a month on, on marketing or a year. I've heard people say, you know, I've been to the conferences where people say, oh, I spend $90,000 $90, a month on Amazon ads. Holy shit, woman. Like, seriously, as a Dutch person, I'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. Like that, everything in me rebels at even giving Amazon that much money in the first place, but also I can't spend that much. That's just not in my nature. Like. No. also Oh, sorry,
0: how? Like, it's fucking hard to get Amazon to spend your money anyway.
1: Like... Not at that level because they literally throw, you know, so much at them and they have a super high ranking. So, I mean, it all comes together and I get that. And it's definitely, it's 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 a valid business model. I don't judge people who do it that way. I'm saying I can't. I cannot Build my business that way. It would scare the, the bejesus out of me to even have to pay bills that high. If it has more than four numbers, before I'm like, <laughs> no, <laughs> like no, just no.
0: Um, okay. Because I know that you like Cl- uh, Clifton Strengths as well. I wanted to ask about your Clifton Strengths. Um, what have you learned from? Clifton Strengths have you changed any of your processes have you changed or not changed necessarily but have you tweaked anything like what have yeah what have you got from from it just cuz i'm noisy well, and also a fellow um, competition
1: yeah <laughs> i think the first thing um i got out of it was um kind of like that aha moment where i was like oh now i understand Because I've had a lot of people over the years ask me things like how I'm sorry, that's my doorbell. (laughs) My son is coming home from school. (laughs) Nothing I can do about that. Um, It's the motion sensor. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, over the years, how do you do this? How do you do that? And then when I explained what I did and they tried to emulate it, it, it turned out to be so much harder for them. And on some level, I understood that, you know, it's how you're wired. But after doing Becca's course, and seeing my top five, which is achiever, learner, activator, communication and competition, like in the coaching session with Becca, she was like, that's a top five of strengths to do what you're doing right now. Like your strengths are uniquely coming together to be as successful as you are. And I was like, Now I understand why for others, it's so much harder. I have that achiever. I have that learner. I have that competition. I have that inner drive. Nobody needs to motivate me to do anything that's coming from within me. Nobody needs to tell me to keep an eye on the charts or to do research because I'm a learner. I do it automatically. So what it has changed for me is that I've, I'm, I've learned to lean much more into those strength and go like, okay, I don't need to apologize for being an achiever. I don't need to apologize for being competitive. This is how I am deal with it. Like if somebody has a problem with me, you know, being an achiever at the end of the day, that's their problem, not mine. Like, I'm sorry, you know, I'm not being rude about it, but deal with it. I think what it also, and that's really the learner part was where I was like, holy cow, this explains so much. I love doing research. And so I would often have to force myself to keep writing in a certain series because it would feel too repetitive for me. Like I'm writing the same thing. I can't do that. And so after doing the course, I was like, I need to give into my need to write something else, not necessarily outside of M.M. Romance, but to try maybe a different um, subgenre or a different setting. I wrote a whole series set in the White House. I mean, I've done so much fucking research for that one. Like I've literally read like 50 books, loved it. Absolutely, My learner was so happy, so happy. And because it's happy, I'm happy and the books are good that is the the cooperation basically where you have to lean into those strengths and say okay this is working for me um i also learned some practical things Uh, becca challenged me to get up earlier which that was not a fun conversation she was right she was absolutely right was that the
0: activator
1: oh my god (laughs) so um (laughs) a single mom but i share custody with my ex-husband so i only have my son half the time if i don't have him there is no reason for me to get up early unless i make an early appointment which i don't right and it's not even that i'm not a morning person it's just that i don't like being told what to do so i just want to be able to sleep in right becca and i had a really good conversation about that and she challenged me like take you know Try it. Try it for two weeks and see the difference. Well, it turns out I'm a lot more productive if I get up at seven instead of at 10. So um, I'm still I'm still somewhat resentful about it (laughs) because I fucking hate it. (laughs) She was right. Becca. Oh, man. Like, yeah, it, Becca. Like, I know oh my god that one killed me
0: yeah <laughs> oh yeah man she uh she is amazing like oh I definitely idolize her I'm I, my learner is so deep in the the pit of learning everything and just consuming strengths it's uh it, it's unbelievable Okay, well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone
1: about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. <laughs> um, I really want to say when I decided to write instead of go the safe route and take a full time job. Like I could have gotten a full time job and be a boring for me not judging anybody, but be a boring, you know, eight to five person who had an income from my son and lived the comfortable life. And I took the risk. And that is not something that was normal for me. I wasn't by nature a risk taker, but I think it was because of the divorce. My, my foundation had been shaken so much already. I was on such shaky ground that i was like well i might as well take this risk like i was discovering things about myself i didn't know and um i turned out to be a lot more um you know a lot stronger than i had ever given myself credit for so that's definitely been a moment where i i rebelled and a lot of people were convinced i was going to fail like family and friends when i said you know i want to write full-time they're like oh my god why the hell are you, do you think you you know especially because I'm writing in English and they're all like, it's not even your own language. So yeah. It, and it's not, I know that, but. Um, you know. Have you written
0: any books in Dutch?
1: No, I can't write in Dutch. You can't write in Dutch. No, it's, it's- interesting. Interesting. I learned to read in English when I was a teenager. I forced myself to read the original language. And this is really something I got from my mom, who always said the translation is never as good as the original. So she was fluent in, in German. And so she really encouraged us to write, uh, my sister and I, to, to read in the original language. So when I was in high school, I felt like, you know, I had to read required Shakespeare and whatever anyway. Um, I was like, I might as well try the, the books. I love translated to read them in the original English. And oh my so my ever god. since so you started I- with Shakespeare, Macbeth. Macbeth. oh my, oh my god. god, Oh my god! We, I, look, we, that was torture. I will admit no but no. it's after that, I started reading the same books that I would read translated into Dutch, the same romances. And um, I, I don't, I don't think I I ever read in, in Dutch, not since high school. It's just not a language I read in. Wow. Oh,
0: I am so amazed at people who speak multiple languages. So my dad has lived in um the Netherlands probably for, I don't know, maybe 17 years. So he speaks, um, he's not obviously got native fluency, but he's I mean, he he speaks Dutch and um, but he also speaks Hebrew, he speaks Spanish, he speaks a little bit of German, he obviously he speaks English and like all of these different languages. And it just fucking blows my mind how like, <laughs> like what what. what language do you dream in?
1: That's always a question that amazes me. Usually in English, um, (sighs) unless I've talked in Dutch to a friend or family um, because of the, obviously of the the, um, war in the Ukraine and everything. I've been talking a lot to my family who's all in Europe. That's all in Dutch. So I noticed that I've been Thinking more in Dutch. It, it also depends on how tired I am. In weeks when I'm super stressed and super tired, I switch back to Dutch. Um, my PA oh, can so often tell when I'm really stressed out because I'll have I'll have trouble um, speaking English. I'll revert back to Dutch. It's just that language is just you know that's that's my ground language. That's just you know the base. Um, I'm also pretty fluent in German because I lived in Germany for a couple of years. Um, I can understand French. I don't speak it very well anymore. It's just too, gotten too rusty. And then a little Spanish. And um, I speak Bavarian, Bayerisch, which is a German language from the south. We lived there in a very small village. Nobody spoke um, official German. They all spoke the dialect. And then I took Latin and Greek in high school. I'm one of those. Um, oh, people. my God.
0: I am in awe of you. I, I find love languages. It, I love I, them. I, I find it fascinating. I am not great at at other languages. I mean, I did Spanish at school for, I don't know, like five years. Like, I am not good I mean I started funny enough because my siblings um all grew up in in the Netherlands and so they're well weirdly my brother's first language is Dutch and my sister's first language is English even though they both lived in Holland and America at the same yeah. time but yeah. but my sister just had an affinity thing I mean they are both clearly fluent in both languages but um my brother will respond in Dutch and my sister will respond in English anyway and it was fucking me off I couldn't understand what was going on or like throw (laughs) these I know right throw the sibling abuse back and so I started learning Dutch but because I'm not in Holland and because I don't have people to speak it to every day it was just so fucking hard to like
1: get it in my brain so i i have stopped now uh, but that being said it's also a pretty impossible language to learn it's one of the harder languages to learn both both because of the sounds and our grammar i mean if you think english is fucked up dutch is just i mean seriously it's uh, it's it's not an it's not an easy language <laughs> it's just
0: not no well yeah i found i found it hard, but then i find i do find languages quite quite difficult apart from english clearly um Right. Okay. Where can people find out more about you? Like what's coming up next for you? Um, yeah. Anything else that you would like to add?
1: Um, well, the easiest way to find me is on my website, www.noraphenix.com. It has just been redesigned. I really love how it looks. It's very clean and bright. Um, I also have a web store there, which I adore. We're still working out the last details there um facebook i'm huge on facebook not because i like facebook but because it's an easy medium for me um i have a facebook group called noras nook and any author is welcome to join even if they're not in mm romance if they want to see how i run my group all i ask is that if there's a question when you join is that they put in the question that they're joining as an author um cuz that helps us see why they're joining cuz you know <clears throat> facebook has its fair share of weirdos unfortunately um, other than that, what's next? Um, I have a new release this, um, this Friday. Geez, yes. Uh, called Jilted Jaron, which is about a guy who gets uh, jilted, uh, basically dumped the day before his wedding. And oh, he's so sad. And then his fiance's brother takes him in. And obviously, you know, the guy thinks he's straight. They all think they're straight. And you know what? It's <laughs> MM romance. They never are. So that's just a very fun, a little bit more lighthearted. Um, Book and the first in a new series called The Foster Brothers. I'm really excited about it. Um, It's just, it's been a really fun book to write. So there is that.
0: Oh, amazing. Thank you so, so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: And of course, thank you
0: to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as random bonus goodies, then you can by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Nora Phoenix. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I am joined by, holy shit, Alex E Harrow. She is one of my all-time favourite authors. She wrote The Ten Thousand Doors of January. She wrote uh, Once and Future Witches. She wrote A Spindle Splintered. And I just was very lucky uh, and got to read her sequel to A Spindle Splintered, which is a uh, retelling of uh, Snow... um, Sleeping Beauty uh, mirror mended and fuck me she is amazing I adore her prose so so much so I was besides myself with excitement to get to talk to her so join me next week for that don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher and when you have a moment please leave a review <music>